Welcome to the podcast of Central Church. This is our latest weekly message. The Old Testament. Uh, then we have the early church, the medieval church, the Reformation, modernism and postmodernism. We kind of straddle both of those last two stages in our day-to-day world as we are. So I'm just going to go through these at a quick pace and then we're just going to finish with a little bit of discussion at the end. So kicking off with Second Temple Jerusalem. And so this is the Jews trying to interpret and understand the scriptures. And the Jews had four assumptions when it came to scriptures. And so the first one was the Bible is relevant. Secondly, the Bible is cryptic. Next, the Bible is coherent. And the last one, the Bible is inspired. I'm just going to focus on the first two just for the sake of time. And so the Bible is relevant. This is something that's still important for us today because even though we live our 70, 80 odd years on earth, God is eternal. He is always there. And so therefore, the Bible, the best thing we have to interpret what God's will for our life is, this must be an ageless book. Yet it's thousands upon thousands of years old. And so how do we make it relevant? How do we keep the Bible relevant? This is important for us today. This was also really important for the Jews at the time because even the Jews at Second Temple Jerusalem, they were still trying to find how does this ancient book, thousands of years old, still be relevant today. And you don't find relevance by just reading at a surface level. You find relevance by digging deeper, looking beneath the text. And that's where they say God lay. God lay beneath the surface of Scripture. And so you had to read it cryptically. And so cryptically meaning that we need to look between the lines. We need to try to discover what is God saying below that surface level. And so the rabbis would sit outside of the the city walls of Jerusalem under the sycamore trees and one of them would throw a verse out of scripture and they'll start debating that verse and and challenge each other about what does it mean and someone might take it and say I think it means this if we look at it from this angle or they might even twist it or they might even add bits to it or take bits away which sounds horrifying for us today but they'll they'll look at scripture they'll play with it they called it dancing with the scriptures it's this beautiful image of this to and fro, back and forth with the scriptures, trying to discover what God is saying through the scriptures. And so they would read it cryptically. And we can actually see evidence of the Jews reading scriptures cryptically, actually in the Bible itself. If you know what you're looking for, the Old Testament is full of this cryptic language that the Jews would use. And so I just have one example I want to share with you at the moment uh, tonight. And this is about King Manasseh. Now, King Manasseh was not a great guy. In fact, he was probably the worst king Judah ever had. He was not a follower of Yahweh, of the Jewish God. He, if there was anything sacrilegious he could have done, this guy did it. He erected pagan idols in the temple. He would worship them. He would uh, offer unholy sacrifices to them. And probably worst of all, he would get all of Israel to be doing it the same as well. And this carried on until he was carted off to Assyria in slavery with a, with a hook through his nose. And that's kind of like the last we hear of Manasseh. And so we have two accounts here. And so two kings is the more historical account. And this is two kings, 21, 10 to 12. And this is God speaking through his prophet through the book of Kings. It says, Manasseh, king of Judah, has committed these detestable sins. 
He has done more evil than the Amorites who preceded him and has led Judah into sin with his idols. Therefore, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel says. I'm going to bring such disaster on Jerusalem and Judah that the ears of everyone who hears of it will tingle. And that's pretty much the last we hear of Manasseh. The only other thing we get is a little footnote saying, if you want to read about all the awful stuff Manasseh did, you can read about it in another book called the Book of Annals. And that's pretty much the end of Manasseh, according to Kings. However, then we get Chronicles. And Chronicles comes about 200 years after the writer of Kings. And it starts off the same, but it's got a different finish. It's like an alternative version. And this is where we start getting to this cryptic language that the Jews were using. And so 2 Chronicles 33, 10 to 13 says, The Lord spoke to Manasseh and his people, but they paid no attention. So the Lord brought against them the army commanders of the king of Assyria, who took Manasseh prisoner, put a hook through his nose, bound him with bronze shackles, and took him to Babylon. So first, we can already see there's something not right here. Why is the king of Assyria taking Manasseh to Babylon? That does not make sense. And so we need to start reading between the lines here. In his distress, he sought favor of the Lord, his God, and humbled himself greatly before the God of his ancestors. And when he prayed to him, the Lord was moved by his entreaty and listened to his plea. So he brought him back to Jerusalem and to his kingdom. Then Manasseh knew that the Lord is God. And so here we have a happy ending for Manasseh being reunited with God again. But all the scholars and theologians that read this and do this deep dive all agree that that last bit is a fabrication. That did not happen. And so we need to ask, what is happening here if that didn't happen? And, and if you haven't seen it yet, let me um, make it clear. This is a metaphor for Israel. Because what the writer of Chronicles was doing, he's looking back at this record of kings with Manasseh, a king from 200 years ago, and thinking Manasseh is now irrelevant. What point do we have to talk about Manasseh anymore? Because this is 200 years ago. It has no bearing on my life now. And so... How do we make Manasseh relevant? We turn him into a metaphor for Judah. We turn him into a metaphor for Israel. And it's in Israel's captivity, in their slavery, that they cried out for God and came back to their promised land. And so that is just one of many, many examples of the Jews themselves reading cryptically into Scripture and making it relevant for their people of the time as well. And so that, that's, just, that's just stage one. I'm not, I've spent the longest on that. I'm not going to spend this long on the rest of the stages or going to be here in this hot, sweaty church for a little bit too long. Okay, so that is uh, the, the second temple in Jerusalem. Uh, the second stage, the New Testament use of the Old Testament. So a couple of things we need to note here. So the New Testament is a second temple text. It was written during the time of the second temple that I was talking about just before. And so now what's happening is the Jews that have now become Christians and now have this new gospel are looking at the Old Testament and thinking, how do we make this Old Testament relevant again? And how do they do that? Just like the Jews did before them, they would use this cryptic language. And so the New Testament is a Jewish text that follows these Jewish rules. And if we look at some of the New Testament writers like Paul and like Matthew, whose audience is predominantly Jewish people, you can see them using this same rhetoric to put their argument forth about who Christ is, what Jesus is doing, and how he has been prophesied and, uh, for all time to come. 
And so I've got two examples here, uh, one from Matthew and one from Paul about how they are reinterpreting the Old Testament into the New Testament. And so the first one from Matthew. And so Matthew in his gospel actually cites Hosea and the passage he's citing from Hosea is 11 verse 1. And it says, when Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. And so here, Hosea is talking about Israel being captive by Egypt under Pharaoh and Moses coming in and taking them out of Egypt. However, he reinterprets this, this uh, prophetic book into his own gospel. So Matthew 2.15 says, And so was fulfilled what the Lord had said through the coming prophet. Out of Egypt I called my son. And so Matthew is no longer talking about Israel. He's talking about Jesus Christ. And when did Jesus come out of Israel? Well, he had to flee to Israel when he was a baby, when Herod was killing all the babies his age, trying to get rid of the Messiah. And so Matthew is taking something very familiar to the Jewish people, this exile out of this exodus out of Egypt and applying it to Christ, making the Old Testament again relevant for this new era in time with this New Testament. Paul does something very similar. And so Paul is citing Isaiah. In Isaiah 59.20, he says, The Redeemer will come to Zion, to those in Jacob who repent of their sins, declares the Lord. And then Paul writes in Romans 11.26-27, And in this way, all Israel will be saved, as it was written. The Deliverer will come from Zion. So this is a change, not to Zion, it's now from Zion. And he will turn godlessness away from Jacob. And this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. And so every scholar that studies Romans have come to the conclusion that Paul isn't just reading a different alternative um, interpretation of Isaiah. He's actually changing and twisting some of those words in Isaiah to make his points about Jesus Christ. And again, for us, our modern day things, our modern brains, we can sometimes think this might be horrific because scripture is sacred. You can't just change. You can't, you can't uh, change the meaning or the intention like that. But this is something that the Jews would do. And this is something I remember when I first started learning about this stuff. I've, I found this to be a struggle as well because I always understood these passages of the Old Testament were always prophesying about Christ. But that is not what we're learning here. We're learning that the Jews would put their own spins on things. They would dance with the scriptures and they would make it relevant for their audience. And that is something that we were very much afraid to do in this day and age. And that's something that I'll, I'll talk about towards the end of uh, tonight as well, about what, what do we do? How do we make sense of that? What do we do with that? Anyway, next stage, early church. And so this is from about 70 AD where the Romans have now bulldozed the temple and it finishes around the 500-600 AD mark. And the main question the early church was trying to grapple with was, do we read the Bible allegorically, so it's symbolically, or do we read it literally? And, you know, and thank goodness we've sorted that out because we don't have to worry about that <laughs> anymore. Now, this, this is still very much a debate that goes on today about how we're supposed to read the Bible. Do we take it all literally or allegorically or some kind of uh, measure in between? And so, for example, the, the burning bush. 
the burning bush that God speaks through to Moses uh, before he leads his people out of uh, Egypt. If we read it literally, we say this burning bush, this is the Holy Spirit of God. This is God's presence speaking through to Moses. Or if we read allegorically, we say the fire represents the cleansing of Israel that is about to happen or something along those lines as well. So two very different uh, angles there. And these come from two main schools of thought that were around during the early church. And so the allegorical school, that came from the Greeks because the Greeks love their stories. They love the allegories. And so in Alexandria, we have got Origen. And he was one of the key figures that was pushing this allegorical reading of scripture. And he would say that the author's intention isn't as important as what does the story stir inside of us? How is it important to us? How is this relevant to us? On the other side, you have, uh, you have Theodore in, uh, in Antioch. And by his friends, he was affectionately known as Ted Mop. So I was told. <laughs> and he was from the literal camp. And we have to take the Bible for its word. This is exactly what it means. Now, it wasn't so black and white and they weren't warring against each other. They, they did hold a certain level of respect for each other's schools of thought. And so the allegory guys could say, yep, there's some stuff in scripture that we should take literally, but a lot of it, it's the allegory that matters. And while the literalist guys would say, yeah, scripture is literal. You have to take it at face value, but sure, there might be the odd metaphor in there as well. It's more about where is your center of gravity? Which side of the camp did you fall into? And so that is the big question that, um, that the early church was trying to struggle with at the time. And, and like I said, we're really just still trying to grapple with this kind of stuff today as well. Okay, moving on, number four, medieval church. And so this takes us from about 500 to 600 AD up until the 1500s. And so, this, when you do the maths, this period of time accounts for almost half of all of Christianity. So Christianity has been around for the 2,000 odd years. This is about half of it. And so this is a big chunk of our Christian history falling into this medieval church uh, period. And this introduced the idea that there are multiple meanings of scripture. And so now we're coming from another angle again. And some theologians did this great and so we have Nicholas of Lyra and Nicholas he uh, he held up a fourfold interpretation of scriptures and so you could go you could keep going deeper and deeper and deeper four levels and so the first level was the literal or the historical meaning and so what does the text plainly mean the second one was the allegorical or the Christological meaning. How do we better understand Christ? And so you can see, he's already taken these two pools of thought that was, um, that was present in the early church, and he's made them the first two uh, points of his um, fourfold meaning of scripture. Uh, number three, the moral meaning. How do I live as a result? What is the point to me personally or as a people group? And then number four, the analogical meaning, which is where is this heading? What's the big picture? What's the point of this passage of scripture? What's the, the greater context? What is it trying to say? And, and, th and this was great. And some great work came out of the medieval church with this fourfold um, approach to scripture. But then there was some not so great interpretations as well. I've just got one quick one here to cite. We've got Gregory the Great. Gregory the Great was a bishop and then he was a Pope of Rome for a while. 
And he's known as Gregory the Great because he instigated the first large-scale mission to those pagan Anglo-Saxons. And so he was a bit of a, a conqueror as, as well. And he was known for saying that all of Scripture holds weight. All of Scripture is relevant. All of Scripture is important. There's no wasted space in the Bible. And, and that sounds great. But these are some of the conclusions that he came to. And so looking at the book of Job, for example. And so at the beginning of Job, it says, Job had seven sons and three daughters. And anyone, you or I, would read that and say, great, Job had 10 kids. Who cares? Let's move on. But no, not Gregory. Greg knew there was something deeper there. And so Greg started applying maths to it. And so Greg would say, well, we know that seven is more than three. That means men must be better than women. And so he came to that conclusion, which no, I'm not saying this, this is Greg <laughs> saying this, that's one of the conclusions he came to. Another, then he got further into the maths, and so then he was saying, oh well, so let's see, so if 7 is 3 plus 4, um, if we did 3 times 4 instead, that gives us 12, and we know there are 12 disciples, and so the maths checks out on that side of things, and so then what do we do with this 3? Oh, well the 3 must be then the Trinity. And so then what Job is talking about, he's not talking about his sons and daughters, he's talking about the disciples and the Trinity. And he goes on these weird and wacky tangents and a lot of people look at it and just kind of like scratch their heads and say, maybe just stick to the conquering side of things, leave the biblical interpretation stuff for the guys like Nicholas. And, and really, I mean, jokes aside, that is probably one of the concerns that we have. If you've grown up, like I grew up in the Anglican church saying this is what the scripture says and anything else is heresy. <laughs> When we hear that, well, Scripture has multiple meanings, that can sound scary. And so how do we do the stuff like Nicholas did that was good, but not fall into the trap like Gregory did and go off on all weird and wacky tangents? And again, I'll, we'll kind of try and sum this up uh, towards the end. And so that was one of the big wrestles that the medieval church had. Anyway, that brings us into the Reformation, which is step number five. And this is from the 1500s to the 1700s. And we know Martin Luther... Um, made his statement on the church door. And what this was is a push to get back to the original source and context. So let's do away with all these multiple meanings and let's just find that one truth, that one, that one fact that we know. This is what scripture means and it can't mean anything else. And this was very much ushered in because this was also around the time science started taking um, get, getting some steam and, and started pushing ahead. And science is the pursuit of that one meaning. And so why is the sky blue? Well, we might have said the gods painted the sky blue, but no, we know it's because oxygen gives us that blue tinge. Uh, why do the planets revolve around the sun instead of the sun revolving around the planets? Well, we know gravity and space-time and things like that. There, there's one reason for things. So that same mindset was also applied to Scripture. There's only one thing Scripture can say. It's a scientific approach to Scripture. And so this became such a big deal that then you have other people during the Reformation, like Calvin, one of the other really big names. He actually said that allegory was satanic because it pulls away from the one true meaning of Scripture. And so this is the, the mindset of the Reformation. We have to find what does Scripture mean? What is the only thing it can mean? And so then it gave birth to the concept of, script, of sola scriptura. And that is, again, Scripture only has one meaning. But here's the problem. Everyone or every group seemed to disagree what that one meaning meant. And so that's when you start having all these different denominations, different people groups and saying, this is what this means. Or this is what Jesus was saying here. No, he was saying this thing over here. This is what he meant. And so then that caused 
the whole idea of inerrancy in scripture as well because the church had all these different denominations all these different people and all this it's like a civil war brewing and how are we going to stop the civil war we're going to say this is what it says and nothing else and if you don't agree with what the church is saying then yeah off with your head that kind of thing and so that that's where we get this idea well one of the reasons why we get this idea of biblical inerrancy it's it's a form of control really trying to to put away all those different multiple meanings and different ideas and things like that and just saying this is one thing and we're controlling it and if you want the truth you need to come through to us and but what they were also doing at the same time is then saying the previous 1500 years of hermeneutics of biblical interpretation that doesn't matter because all of that was just here say all that was just a guess we now know the truth and so we disregard the previous one and a half millenniums worth of interpretations and that's that, that was hard. <laughs> okay, this now brings us into our modern period. And the modern period, you can still very much see a lot of notions, a lot of ideas, a lot of mindsets still like that as well from, from the Reformation. And so we have further science. So now in this modern age, we have archaeology. And so we're digging up things out of the ground that directly relate to scripture. But it doesn't match the biblical account especially around the whole creation story. We are digging up fossils 65 million years old and plus how does that work with the six-day idea of creation, which if you do the maths according to scripture tells us that the world, the universe, is about 6,000 years old. And so people are now looking at archaeological evidence and looking at scripture and saying there's something not right here. And so during this modern period we've found that the Bible itself has come under investigation. Now, the Bible be under investigation. That, I don't think that's so much the problem because we actually we have minds. God gave us minds to use. But I think we get in trouble where we say, well, if this doesn't match, if the Bible doesn't match the scientific evidence, then the whole thing needs to be thrown out because we can't trust anything in there. I think that's going a step too far. And so this is the challenge of this modern period. How do we understand scripture given what we're finding? And one of the guys that had something to say about this is one of the key figures, Brock Spinoza. He, this guy, he was the first liberation um, theologian. And he says, and this is big, interpretation of the Bible should be taken out of the hands of the priests because they are aligned with the government. And so he was around during Christendom where church and state were combined and controlling what was taught uh, to the people, to the masses. Instead, he believed that everyone could read the Bible for themselves. And so let's take it, so you're saying, let's take it out of the hands of the priests, out, out of the hands of the government, and let's give it to, no, not just you know, anyone making their own religion, but let's give it to the learned people, let's give it to like the scientists. And he ushered in the first systematic historical critical interpretation of the Bible which means rather than looking at the world through the lens of the Bible and trying to make history fit into what Scripture says, instead trying to understand, as we understand history, trying to understand how does Scripture fit to what uh, the historical records are saying. So he's flipping that on its head. Again, still with that just one meaning, but it's now with this scientific approach. And so this might feel, feel familiar if you've been in a lot of other denominations. We Still a lot of churches still hold very tightly to this one meaning of scripture. And then finally, this brings us to postmodernism, where some of us are here, some of us aren't, but it's been going on since about the 1900s. And it was influenced by key figures that influenced other postmodern um, movements like Pablo Picasso and Sigmund Freud and other guys like that. 
And this is a return to pre-modernity, to a pre-modern understanding of scripture. And so pre one, only one meaning to scripture. And so it's a return to the multiple meanings, but it's a little bit different now. In this postmodern era, we look at different people groups and we look at how these people groups would read scripture and what they pull out of scripture, how is it relevant for them and how is it correct for them. And so different communities would have their own interpretations. And so we have like uh, feminist theology and what they pull out of scripture is, uh, is correct to them. We have black theology, we have LGBTQI plus theology. And so we have all these different camps reading scripture now for themselves, just like what Spinoza was asking us to do, and finding truth, finding relevance by reading cryptically into scripture like this. And those of us who are still true modernists, that they absolutely hate this postmodern movement, because again, it feels scary. It feels like a slippery slope. It feels like anything goes. But that's, that's not what we're saying here. Anyway, some of the key figures uh, we have in the postmodern movement is David Steinmetz. And so he was saying that medieval exegesis is better than modern because it connects to your life. So again, if scripture can only have one meaning and we read it literally, then again, we're reading about people that lived a long, long time ago. What bearing does that have on our lives today? Whereas if we read it allegorically, if we read it with multiple meanings, then there is something in there for us because we can see the metaphor and that metaphor is timeless. That metaphor can apply to us as well. Um, there's a guy called Walter Wink, and he's done a lot of work on nonviolent resistance. Uh, he, one of his um, most well-known books is The Myth of Redemptive Violence. And this, his whole work is a reaction to modernism. And we also have Phyllis Tribble, and she is well known for her work in feminist theology and her work around the texts of terrors. And if you've read the Bible, especially in the Old Testament, you will know there are some horrific passages in there. And it's seeming like that God or whoever the holy person is that the story is about is condoning these horrific acts to minorities or the most vulnerable of people. And what do we do with that kind of stuff? How do we look at that in our modern mindset and see God through these horrific acts? And so there's been a lot of work done in this um, postmodern movement. And so what, what's the point of all this? What, why, why go through this? Well, I touched on this at the start. And I'll just flesh this out a little bit more now. Hermeneutical awareness is really important. It's really important for us to be our stand back, see where we've come from, see what we've gone through to help us realize where we are going as a church, as a faith group, and, and what does our role in the world look like? And what does our teaching look like in the world as well? It gives us hermeneutical humility as well. And so we could easily look back at these, at these previous stages and, and, and scoff, <clears throat> sorry, scoff at them and just say, that, look how backwards they had it, look how wrong they were back then. We know so much better now. But, but understanding where we've succeeded, where we haven't done so well over the course of Christian history, it gives us humility now to realise that maybe we don't have all the answers right now. Maybe we aren't doing this perfectly right now either. Where have we fallen before? Are we doing that again? It allows us to reflect on our own walk, our own journey, our own hermeneutics uh, more accurately, I think more justly with ourselves. We need to avoid polarising the Bible and weaponising it where possible because we've been wrong in so many different ways. So instead, I think we need to be reading with wisdom. The Bible, if anything, the Bible can be said to be a lot of different things. But if anything, I think the Bible is a book of wisdom. 
it's, it goes over many different genres from many different authors. And if we approach it with an open mind and wisdom and understanding, I think we do better than just trying to go with that scientific approach, saying this is the only thing it can say and nothing else. And I think most importantly, we need to be reading this stuff together as well. Some of us have studied, some of us have not. Some of us have been Christians all our lives, some of us have not. We are all at different levels. But if we read it together, together we are stronger than if we try and do this separately. And that, I love how that echoes back to what I was talking about right at the start, those Jewish rabbis sitting outside of the city of Jerusalem, arguing, debating scripture, dancing with the scriptures. And together, they have a much better chance of understanding what God was saying through scripture than if they were just each individually trying to work it out themselves. And so that's what we need to be doing as a church in this modern, in this postmodern era as well, doing this together, sharing our thoughts. I had this idea, this epiphany, and bouncing that off other people rather than just taking yourself you know, too far like good old Gregory the Great was doing. And so where is God in scripture? We find him below the surface if we want to find relevance in scripture as well. And that might sit more comfortably with some of us than others. But this is why, again, we need to be doing this together and sharing this and walking this journey together as we go through the Bible, uh, as we explore our hermeneutics, our own personal hermeneutics, own personal interpretations of what scripture is saying. And together we are stronger than if we are part. And so in that spirit, I just want to finish with just a little bit of group discussion because I recognize that there are um, many brilliant minds in this congregation as well. It's not just me up here with all the answers at all. I know there's people in this congregation that have studied as well. They've probably studied a lot more, more than me as well. And I love to hear from you as well. And so just with the maybe, you know, the three, four, maybe five people around you, just choose one of these two questions that I have up here and share your thoughts. So it could be corporately. So as a church, as a whole, in light of Christianity's history of hermeneutics, how does it or should it impact our approach to biblical interpretation today? I've already touched a bit on that, but again, I'd love to hear your thoughts as well. And, then, and secondly, you can, do, you can look at it individually as yourself. How has your understanding of scripture changed over your life? And what led to your change of view and how did or didn't you embrace it? Because yeah, understand, having our minds open about this kind of stuff can be hard. I was struggling a lot with this stuff as well when I first started my journey into it as well. And so again, with the people around you, let's just have a chat just for five or so minutes. And then if anyone wants to share with the greater church, then we'll do that and then we'll finish up for the night. Okay? Thanks, guys. I'll give you guys just one more minute just to finish up some thoughts. And then I'd love to hear what you've been talking about. Oh, sorry. Did we miss out on someone? <laughs> Would you like to share? <laughs> Straight up. No. <laughs> <laughs> now, anyway, no pressure, but anyone who would like to, because that, that's the thing. We, if you don't want to share, no pressure to share whatsoever. We don't want to make anyone feel really uncomfortable or anything like that. But if you do have something to love to share with the church, then we'd love to hear it as well. Any takers? Yep. Yeah, Aaron, I was pleased to have done your little course attended your workshop that you did last year which gave me a good understanding of this that we've gone through again today 
and it's just helped me appreciate that um, I was brought up in an Anglican church. Um, the Bible was the centre of your faith. It was always inerrant. Uh, that uh, that uh, there was only one way to interpret the Bible. And then my parents moved from an Anglican church to a, a reformed, Calvinistic, ex-Presbyterian church. And uh, they were even more rigid in their way is the right way and their interpretation is the right interpretation. And I was never comfortable with it, even though I went along with it for years. And it's made me appreciate more our church and our approach to, for instance, for the last few years of our sermon process being to look at one passage of scripture for three weeks from different angles and different interpretations and recognising that we don't have all the answers but there are different different people have gotten a um, great insight into what God's saying to us through the way they've looked at the Bible. So it makes me appreciate our journey that we're on as a church and wanting to keep going on that path of um, being open to learning new things from God and about God and, and how we best read his word and hear from him. Yeah, thanks, Pete. Yeah, I remember a yeah, similar experience when, like I grew up thinking, yeah, the Bible's literal, it's... It's, it's all true, it's inerrant. And then talking to someone, uh, they helped me realise that actually I didn't really think every single little bit of the Bible was literal. And then they explained that most of the, the church around the world doesn't believe everything's literal as well. And I, I just remember this feeling of like falling, of like, well, if one part's, you know, just a metaphor, then what's to stop everything from being a metaphor? And just going on that journey, it was just, um, yeah, it just feels like the four opens up beneath you and you just fall and like, where's this going to go? But yeah, that was just the part, the first part of this kind of like deconstruction journey that I went on myself. So it is interesting. And, and it's so much better doing it with other people as well, rather than trying to figure all this kind of stuff out in, in our own heads. Anyone else? <laughs> There's some fingers being pointed. <laughs> Les, yeah. I think we all came from an Anglican background. And the, the interest, I think, in, in this place is that there's willingness for other levels as well. And I started off by saying that I'm um, kind of thankful that Jesus spoke in parables and hyperbole because I'd probably only have one eye and one hand. <laughs> and there's also the fact that some people just didn't get it, so they turned away from his message. Yeah, so it's interesting. And... Um, and the fact that the, you had those hundreds of years in the organised uh, Catholic Church at the time was a chance for humans to get in and muck it up. Yeah, I was... Um yeah, I remember it being yeah in that those moments as well, and just trying to yeah make 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 sense of it, of it all, and it's just being yeah really. I just remember yeah, the journey was just a re really tricky one, and you know what are the limits, what aren't the limits, and all that all that kind of stuff. It's 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 easy to look back at our part. Like I'm talking just personally at my own past. I remember early on I would look back and think, well, now I have this new way of looking at the Bible 
was such an idiot before. But I don't think that's healthy either. That's t that's taking it too far. I, th I think, and like I was talking about uh, hermeneutical humility, it's like appreciate, okay, so this is my journey. This is part of my story. Sure, I, I might have thought some things that I don't think now. Uh, it's like, you know, when I, when I was young, when I was a teenager, I, I did things that now if I did them, I'll really regret. I think we're really stupid, but that's just part of my growing process as well. And just appreciating those were the stages, somewhat embarrassing, but those were the stages that got me to where I am today. And, and, and that's okay as well. Cool. Anyone else? Yeah, Mick. And I was also struck by what you said, Aaron, about the humility, um, just understanding the different approaches, um, not presuming that I'm right and other person's right or whatever. Um, but I think the other thing that comes out to me in all of this is that we can look at it like this is people's way of grappling with finding or describing what God's like. And we, we might forget to realise that God's humbly, desperately, gently reaching out to reveal himself to us. Um, and with all our intellect and arrogance we can, and best intentions, we can grapple at things and, and react against the, the most recent history and try and come up with an alternative. Um, and I think it's just having the humility to, to listen um, to God's Holy Spirit um, through scripture look at Jesus, um, yeah, so. Yeah, thanks. Um, yeah, and I think, yeah, kind of like what you're saying, it's, if God wanted us to have this all sorted out from the get-go, without any of these, you know, ups and downs, multiple meanings, single meanings, or any of that kind of stuff, then he wouldn't have made it so difficult to interpret to begin with. Uh, one of my favourite quotes is from Eugene Peterson. He, uh, he wrote the, the Message translation of the Bible. And he says, if God wanted us, some along the lines of, if God wanted us to know exactly what he meant, he would have communicated with us through mathematics, the only perfect language there is. But it's hard to say I love you in algebra. And so I've, like, I've always loved that. <laughs> cool. Okay, anyone else before we finish up? Cool. Okay. Well, thank you for listening to me in this hot and sweaty church. It's been great spending this afternoon with you, but go outside, get cool, and I hope you have a great week as well. And we'll see you all for Morning Classic Church next week. Thanks for listening. If you want to check out more about Central, visit us at centralchurch.org.au. Music by Chris D'Souza, a beloved member of Central. <laughs>